John chapter 1, that's where we want to be this morning and uh, consider we're, we're going to be taking our time to look at one verse this morning. But just before we get to that verse, some of you may have noticed you know, on the front building, and maybe some of you have been here around long enough that you don't notice anymore, we have a sign out here on the front of the building. And uh, on that sign is a, a short description of some of the things that have defined this church for a while. One of the things that you'll see in the middle, in the red, it says fundamental. So we are, a, uh, as described by there, a fundamental Baptist church. Now, what does that mean? What does fundamental mean? Depending on who you are, the answer to that question is going to be different in how you understand the word fundamental. You know, if you're a, uh, a scientist or, or engineer or even a musician or something like that, we have uh, specific definitions of what fundamental means. But here we're talking about in relation to people, not sciences or ideas. What does fundamental mean in relation to people? Currently, if you were to wander around and ask what fundamental meant, the, the popular understanding amongst most people in the world today of fundamental usually is just a synonym for synonym, not synonym, synonym for uh, extremist. Somebody who is very strict about something all the way through to terrorists. And that seems to be at the current sort of popular understanding of fundamental. There's a small subset of Christianity that understands it as a movement which began in the 1910s and 1920s as a, uh, a fight against modernism in, in Christianity. It started amongst the Presbyterians and quickly grew to include Anglicans and Congregationalists and Baptists and, and a number of others. But it was a movement which began as a defense of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. Is what are the basics, what are the core things of Christianity that must be? Since the uh, 1950s, as it moved from 1910 through 1950, it began to change and almost eat itself for a while and changed into something that it didn't begin as. And then by the 1980s, uh, very widespreadly amongst that movement, it began to define itself a little bit differently and people from the outside began to define it as people who wore suits and ties to church, and the ladies, <clears throat> ladies wore dresses and the girls wore culottes. If you don't know what culottes are, girls, just say a prayer of thanks to God that you don't know what they are and move on with your life. By fundamental, we have fundamental on our sign. By fundamental, we mean the 1910 idea of fundamental. That is, we believe that there are core, basic, or fundamental doctrines which are essential to true Christianity. If you shake or redefine those, you are no longer truly Christian, whether you wear a tie or not. So why the history lesson this morning? Because today, as we come to our passage, we come to one of those fundamental doctrines. We look at one of the things which, if you get this wrong, even slightly, you are no longer inside orthodox Christianity, you are something else. This is of utmost importance. This is the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
is that God became man. So let's read together. We're going to read from verse 1 of John chapter 1 through verse 14. And verse 14 is our key text this morning. So it says in John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here is our key this morning. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we are, we are coming this morning into, into mysteries that we cannot completely grasp. We are coming into places where we need to believe by faith to see the absolute glory and wonder of who you are and what you have done for us. Open our eyes this morning, each and every one of us, to see truth. Move us to be drawn to respond to that truth. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew and in Luke, we are given uh, illustrations, we're given details of the nature of Christ's birth. So we hear in, in both Matthew and Luke, we hear of the announcement to uh, you know, both um, Elizabeth and, and to Mary about uh, John the Baptist being born and Jesus being born. Uh, we see how Joseph interacts with Mary and we see the details of their birth and what they did after. Matthew and Luke spend a, a significant portion of their introductions in showing us the details of the physical nature of Jesus' birth so that we can see what happened and understand there. But John doesn't do that. John connects us immediately to see the connection between the transcendent and the temporal. And he brings these two glorious and magnificent truths together in one moment so that we can see what is going on here. We need to understand this truth. We need to understand the implications of this truth. Because John tells us if we get this wrong, if we get this, the the virgin birth, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, if we get this wrong, you are not Christian. So John himself shows us in 1 John chapter 4 when he writes a little later, he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. 
And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. See, John is very clear. To be Christian, to be what it means to genuinely be Christian and to be part of God's family means we must believe God came in the flesh as the Bible describes it. If we don't, we're not Christian. We're something else, some other type of religion. God has come to us. So what does that mean and why is it important? Our text this morning says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's consider that this morning. Firstly, as we look at the first phrase of this, we come to understand, firstly, that Jesus communicated to us. And the word became flesh. John deliberately continues this this phrase and the way he describes Jesus as the word from the beginning because he is intentionally trying to get us to connect what he says in verse 14 with how he opened his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So that very God we saw at the beginning who is eternal and creator and ruler of all things is the same God that we're talking about in verse 14 that became flesh. He is eternal God. He has all the attributes of God. He is, as I've used before, very God of very God. John will reveal these truths more deeply to us as we continue through his gospel to see that he is eternal. We will see that he is omniscient. We will see that he is omnipotent and all-powerful. It is not okay to think that Jesus is a God. It is not okay to think that Jesus is partly God. It is not okay to think that Jesus is created God. He is God. Paul writes for us in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, for in him, that is in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is fully, completely, and wholly God. This is the truth that John has been hammering on through John chapter 1. Jesus is God. And he hammers that, and that's going to get hammered all the way through his gospel. Jesus is God. So he uses that idea of word to help us understand that God spoke. In Jesus, God has spoken to us. The eternal God, the eternal God has made himself known. The eternal God has made himself known. That that awesome truth is immensely glorious and magnificently personal. That God has come in the flesh. The eternal God has initiated a conversation with his creation. Word expresses communication. Word is the most accurate form of communication. We have many ways to communicate. We, we communicate in, in music and we communicate in sound and we communicate in gesture. 
but the most accurate way for us to communicate is word. Jesus is communicating to us clearly because God is a communicator. When he created all things, you know, the Bible could have told us that how God did it was God snapped his fingers or that he just thought it. But the Bible tells us over and over again that he created all things by the word of his mouth. He communicated. Now, there's some interesting scientific aspects that come as a result of that, but that's not our point this morning. God created from the word of his mouth. And from the moment he created, he began communicating. He walked in the garden every day with Adam and Eve, and he talked with Adam and Eve. He communicated with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he told them who he was, and Moses, and explained to them his promises and his plan. He communicated to the people of Israel through the law and through the Shekinah, which dwelt over them. He communicated. He communicated to Israel through the prophets and through the priests of Israel. Today, he communicates to us through the ministry of the Spirit and the Word of God, the Scriptures. And the climax of all of that, the great theme of all of that, is Jesus, the Word. In Hebrews, we're told this, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, it opens with these words, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. The Bible also tells us that God has communicated himself so clearly that every single person that has ever landed on this earth is without excuse. That is how clearly God has communicated himself to us. Jesus communicated to us. God spoke to us. In becoming flesh, in that the word was made flesh, he became eternal God, became flesh. This is why the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is so fundamental to Christianity and to our salvation. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. Philippians chapter 2 tells us in verse 6 and 7, it says, who being in the form of God did not think it robbery to be equal with God. That is, he held the very same state. He is fully God, yet made himself of no reputation and took upon the form of a servant. He was equal with God, but took upon our likeness. In taking upon our likeness, he took upon our nature, but not our sin. Which is why 2 Corinthians can say that he became sin for us. That is, he took upon us and then he bore our sin who knew no sin. He takes our nature, but not our sin. It's a divine mystery that Jesus becomes fully human without giving up any deity. Fully God, fully man. He did not come to be one of us. 
So he didn't come down so that he could buddy with us and, and be with us and be like we are and do what we are. He came to show us who God is. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. When we look at Jesus, we see God. He is the image of the invisible God. He became what he was not so that we could become what we are not. The magnificent personal reason that Jesus did this. In Hebrews chapter 2, again, it says, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation or appeasement or satisfaction for the sins of the people. He didn't come to be one of us. He came to rescue us, to deliver us. The eternal Son of God had to become like us so that we could become children of God. You see, there is a reason that John writes the way he does here, and he writes verse 12 and 13 to lead us to verse 14. See, John, 12, John 1 verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That is the result of verse 14. Because God came in the flesh, we can receive him and be called the children of God. And that leads us to verse 13, which were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's why verse 13 stands in the middle. I don't become a son of God on my own. It's not by my will, it's but by, by God's. And how does that happen? The word became flesh. And so, because the word became flesh, not because of what I did, not because of what I can do, not because of what I have to offer, but because God did it, I can be a child of God. Jesus communicated to us and that God spoke to us so that we could understand. One of the key things that runs all the way through the scriptures from beginning to end, and, and it's, it's why we, we have the word of God in our language and in every other language now today. And one of the things that runs all the way through the word of God is that God communicates not just to say stuff, but so that we will understand. Understanding is key so that we will understand God wants to be understood. God wants to be understood. God isn't hiding from us. Contrary to some of the books you'll see in Kurong and bookstores and places like that, there is no secret code in the Bible. God hasn't hidden any special message in there for those who are, are willing and able to decipher the, the cosmic code. God is not hiding from us. Yes, it's hard to understand but it's hard to understand because God is infinite and we are not. That's why it's hard to understand. Everything that God has done through history is to communicate truth to us so that we understand. This is why we're told to be witnesses of the light. Our duty as the people of God is to help others understand to see the light. 
Jesus communicated to us. Jesus communicated about God and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus communicated about God so that we could see God. He communicated about God so that we could see God. When in Matthew, and, and well, Matthew particularly, but we see it in Luke as well. In, in Matthew, when we see the, the prophecies and, and the announcements of Jesus coming, the angels say that he is to have a name. His name is to be Emmanuel. Why? God with us. God with us. God came to dwell amongst us. You see, there's a contrast here, a deliberate contrast between verse 1 and verse 14. In verse 1 we have, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Those are statements of absolute. So those are, are permanent states. The word is God. But then we get to verse 14, and it says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt means to tabernacle or to pitch a tent. It carries with it the idea of a temporary dwelling. So verse 1, Jesus is always God. In verse 14, the one who is always God temporarily came to be with us. He came to dwell with us. For 33 years, Zish, he walked on this earth. And his presence wasn't just some spiritual idea. Which is why John writes, and he opens his, his epistle, his first epistle, 1 John 1, verse 1, and he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. So John isn't here talking about some idea, some mystic sense of God. He's saying, in Jesus, we saw him with our own eyes. We touched him. We hugged him. We shook his hand. We listened to what he said. God came to us. He came to us so that his glory could be seen. We beheld his glory. John, like Peter and his brother James, had a unique experience described in Matthew chapter 17 where they were taken up onto the mountain and, and for a moment they saw the veil of Jesus' flesh removed for a moment and saw the glory of God as they stood there. We call it the transfiguration. But John, when he talks about seeing the glory of God and we beheld his glory, he means more than that. Because otherwise he would be saying, I'm limiting this idea to just, just a few people who had the chance to stand on top of a mountain and see something unique and glorious. He means much more than that. When John talks about seeing the glory of God, he isn't talking about physical appearance. Jesus was not a handsome man in terms of, well, he was just ordinary. You know, there are times when people are looking for him in a crowd and they cannot even find him because he just looks like everybody else. So his glory is not about what he looks like. His glory wasn't even about his miracles, the vast amount of miracles which he did. The glory that we saw in Jesus was seeing the beauty and the wonder of God in the face of Christ. 
That's how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 4. In Jesus, we see God's purity. We see his holiness. We see his truth. We see his compassion. We see his wisdom. We see his grace. We see his truth. In Jesus, we see the glory of God in his nature. He shows us what God is like. In Jesus, we're not just seeing a good man. We're seeing the perfect God. Jesus communicated about God so that we could see God, so that we could know God. The verse says, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. We can know God, and the only way we can know God is Jesus. Only by Jesus can we know who God truly is. The only way we can know about God is for God to reveal himself to us, to make himself known. Only begotten is a, um, it's a, it's a confusing word because we often think when we see begotten there as we have in, in our King James here, we often think of regeneration or birth. You know, we think of like the, the Old Testament genealogies and so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. That's not what's here. So only begotten doesn't mean anything about generation. Only begotten is better understood as one and only, unique. Okay? So that's, that's what we mean here. Not that he was created, not that he came from anything, not that he is the, the, the only one that God created special. It is that he is the only one who is the son of God. He is unique. He is the one and only of God. There is no other way to know God. There is no other way to know God. Jesus and only Jesus makes God known. He is the very word of God. So that we could know Jesus only by Jesus, but so that we could know God as Father. Jesus revealed the glory of God as Father, that God could be known, that God is loving, that God is caring, that God is near, that as Father, he will do what is good and what is right and what is best for his children. Thus, John writes in his epistle, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Jesus communicated to us. Jesus communicated about God. Jesus communicated to transform us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He came to transform us in that he came in grace and truth. In coming in grace and truth, as he comes in grace, he came to reveal the depth of God's love. Titus 2 and verse 11 tells us, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. In Jesus, we see the grace of God. We see that. Jesus came as a man because God 
loves. But he is full of grace. That is, in Jesus, we begin to understand, we begin to see the unsearchable depths of God's love. That his grace is far deeper than we can imagine. Jesus came so that you would know without doubt that God is love. We know this verse well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, again, one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He came full of grace to show the the great love and mercy of God, and he came full of truth. Truth to set us free. John 8 tells us that you shall know the truth in him and the truth shall set you free. See, God's grace, his love, isn't empty sentimentality. His grace and his love are are inescapably bound to truth. They cannot be separated. He reveals to us the truth of who God is. He reveals to us what God expects of us in any of that, that we fall short. He reveals to us not only the great perfection of God, but our absolute imperfection. The truth that only Jesus can free us. When I see Jesus, I see that I am not Jesus. That is, I am not perfect, but I am enslaved to my pride and my selfishness. See, Jesus came to communicate it, to transform us. He came in grace and truth to transform us through grace and truth. That is, Jesus came to save. He came to save us. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. The word became flesh so that we could become children of God.